boy. I got to talk about Tenet. And uh, there's going to be major spoilers in this. So if you haven't seen the film, don't listen. Uh, Also, if you haven't seen the film, don't watch the film. (laughs) Save your time. Go watch Avatar instead. So after all these months of waiting, uh, and no doubt, probably, you know, you got to figure a dozen people or so died going to see Tenet in the theaters or because of it, possibly, if you think about how many people, how many thousands of people saw it in the theater. I'm sure a couple of them have croaked since then. Was it worth it? Uh, no, folks. Nolan's downward spiral continues, in my opinion. Now, uh, I think Christopher Nolan is a great filmmaker. I think he's made some fantastic films. I would say he was really uh, on a roll up until Dark Knight Rises. And now uh, that's probably a controversial statement. Dark Knight Rises is a good film. And ultimately, the the ending is so fantastic. It sticks to landing so well. You sort of forgive all of the oddities and mistakes and, and sort of um, undercookedness of the rest of the film. Um, I can spend an entire episode on Dark Knight Rises and, and the, the sort of decline in quality of Nolan's work from that point on. But uh, this is about Tenet, so let's try to focus here. I, I do consider his work to have severely dropped off from that point. Um, after Dark Knight Rises, we had Interstellar, which started this very, very odd fascination he has with doing terrible sound mixes to the audio of films, which he says is intentional. But uh, anyone who's experienced any of his films from Interstellar onward have all sort of come to the consensus that you cannot hear dialogue and that music is so overwhelmingly loud uh, it is distracting from the film. Uh, That sort of audio problem is in full effect in Tenet. It seems to have come back with a vigor uh, that was not seen in Dunkirk, which by, you know, comparison seemed to be mixed relatively well. Dunkirk itself, actually, there is a, a great masterwork film within Dunkirk, but it needs to be edited correctly. Nolan's problem is his enchantment with gimmicks in filmmaking. And Dunkirk, if you've seen it, uh, if not, here's a spoiler, it plays out in a uh, weird chronology. So you're actually seeing scenes from the future and, uh, you know, there's kind of three different tales happening and they eventually intertwine and connect, but you're watching them out of order. Now, what purpose that serves? Uh, No purpose. Absolutely no purpose. It's a complete distraction from what could have been a really great film. Uh, His need to sort of show how clever he is with the the sort of order of scenes and chronology, which obviously plays a part in Tenet, um, it's it's a huge liability for him. And Dunkirk could have been, you know, a return to form for him and, and a pretty great movie but he just insisted on shoehorning in this stupid ass out of order uh, ploy and it didn't work and uh, frankly it sucked it sucked really bad so that brings us to this long awaited film everybody probably wanted to see in the theater and IMAX on a big screen but the majority of us are relegated to video on demand Um, you know instantly I found a, a profound weight coming over me with this film. Now, the opening is uh, classic Nolan. 
a high octane sort of uh, scene, you know, uh, uh, opera house hostage takeover, pretty interesting, interesting set piece, uh, gets the blood pumping. The problem is, we know nothing about this character, the group he's in, we know nothing about the opposing group, we know nothing about his mission. If you stack this against The Dark Knight, which, you know, I still consider to be a really, really fantastic film, if not one of the best films ever made, certainly one of the best superhero films. Think of the intro to that. You got this sort of slow build of these bank robbers getting into position for a vault heist. And what are they doing while they're getting in position? They're giving us information about the titular, well, I guess it wouldn't be the titular character, the antagonist of the film. And they don't say much, but they give us enough to paint a picture of who this person is And, more importantly, we know what they're trying to accomplish. And that's a a large overarching problem with Tenet. We don't know what the main character, or any character, wants. We don't know what is the the sort of thrust of the action that's happening, with the exception of the highway chase scene, which, you know, I will speak about a little later. That one's pretty clear, and there is a clear defined need and want and goal and therefore it it sort of is probably the strongest part of the film. But um, the the prestige of this film, the sort of gimmick, the aha moment that Nolan cannot pry himself away from, this mandatory thing where, you know, there's a flip at the end and everything is shuttered into a new focus. This goddamn crutch he has to use in every film, you know, Um, It is that, from what I gather anyway, (laughs) the main character has been behind all of the, 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 the armies and the agents and everybody working towards a goal in the film has been working under his behest. And he is... God, my, my mind is just melting trying to explain this. Um... Yeah, essentially, the main character is also the boss of the entire film. If that sounds confusing and convoluted, that's because it is confusing and convoluted, and is not actually explained in a very good fashion. I'm finding this film hard to actually talk about and break down into words because it is incredibly convoluted and nonsensical. And look... Most time travel movies, which you could argue this is and this isn't, uh, don't make sense. They're nonsensical. Looper famously has that scene between Bruce Willis uh, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt where he says, don't think too much about this. Uh, You know, it it doesn't really matter. And they actually call that out in this film right in the opening, more or less. Uh, Not the opening, but the, the scene right after that. They say, don't think too much about this. And that's fine. But if you look at something like Inception, which... The logic of Inception does not actually work. If you really, really break it down and you look at, um, you know, if you look at a sort of overall graph of these characters and their journey and, uh, you know, the, the laws of the universe, it doesn't actually work. It sort of is fudged a little bit, but because you care about the lead character, he has a compelling 
backstory, he wants to get reunited with his kids, and he has to do this job in order to do that. You're along for the ride, and it's thrilling, and it doesn't make a ton of sense, and it is a little confusing, but ultimately it sticks the landing, and uh, you you leave feeling intrigued, and um, like upon multiple watches, you can kind of decipher this film. I have no such hope for this film. I, pro- I probably will watch it a couple more times to see if it is sort of intentionally uh, so obtuse. Because um, that may be, that may be the sort of, you know, intention that Nolan had. Uh, let, uh, again, I'm doing a bad job of breaking this down, but uh, it's a very hard film to break down. So basically, one of the the key features of the film and one of the and the single biggest problem is you don't know anything about the main character and you don't know anything about his relation to other people and you don't know who these other groups of mercenaries and soldiers and things like that are the reason for that is because at the end you would discover all of these people are working for the main character sort of i know doesn't make a whole lot of sense so what we're robbed of in Tenet that is pretty crucial for not just action movies but good movies is an understanding of who a character is, what they're looking to accomplish, and what their relationship is to other characters and what those other characters are looking to accomplish. We don't receive any of that, arguably because Nolan is sort of casting that aside to get to the big reveal at the end, and then on a second watch, maybe it makes sense. But that's a huge fucking problem, because you have nobody to root for. Now, the blank protagonist, as a sort of device in film, can be very useful. Uh, Jake Sully, in Avatar, pretty bland, pretty featureless. And James Cameron's intention with that is that you, the audience member, are Jake Sully. You're going on his journey. You don't need to sort of dress him with a whole bunch of stuff because ultimately you're going to fill that vessel and that vessel is going to take its journey through Pandora. And that's very intentional. But what does James Cameron set up right in the opening? Jake Sully had a twin brother. His twin brother is dead. Jake Sully is disabled. If he wants to get his legs back, he needs to do this project. Great. That's all you need. You don't actually have to address it again. In Tenet, by comparison... We know nothing really about this character. We know he sort of works for the CIA. We don't know what his mission at the Opera House is. We don't know who his co-workers are. We don't really know what they're trying to accomplish. They get to this VIP box, and there is a sort of person of interest that there's one line of dialogue spoken, very hard-to-understand dialogue, because he's wearing a mask and because Christopher Nolan does this goddamn sound mixing that is inscrutable. Um... We have no idea what the main character's relationship is to this person of interest, who this person of interest is, who the the opposing forces are, what the stakes of this action scene are, etc., etc. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to talk about this, honestly. Um, Further fault with the film comes when Robert Pattinson comes on the scene, who, by the way, I've really sort of started to like as an actor, really did not like him. I think largely Robert Pattinson, you know, he has had to do films without naming names that he was not thrilled about. And his acting was 
reflective of that. Now that he is a bona fide star and gets to, you know, pick it, which films he does, he's clearly having a lot of fun. He's a charismatic guy and, you know, he's good in this, but you don't fucking know what he wants, who he works for, what his relationship is to the character. Now, of course, there's a big reveal and they've known each other for a long time, sort of, uh, doesn't fucking matter. This information at the end of the film doesn't serve anything because you need this information. You need these key points, these, this sort of intel in order to adhere yourself to the characters and to the journey they're going on. You can't have that at the end of a film unless the grand intention here is to get people to watch a film more than once, which may very well be a sort of cynical plot that Christopher Nolan has. He knows that, you know, it's harder and harder to have a successful box office. Obviously, he didn't see COVID coming. Um, but in order to, like, get that repeat view, maybe that was the premise he based this entire script on. How do I get people to go to the movie theater more than one time and double or triple my box office receipts? That could very well be the actual gimmick he was going for. But um, the problem is, uh, in an initial watch, you just don't care. You don't give a fuck. You don't know who these people are. There's, a, there's I would guess, three to four different factions of fatigued, masked, armed people. And there is no way to discern who anybody is or what they're looking for. You know, it's very, very aimless in that way. Um, You need to understand clearly what direction people are moving in. Because otherwise, you're just, you're, you're watching just random pixels on the screen, honestly. I did watch one sort of uh, critical analysis of this film prior to recording this, just to see if I was sort of off base completely with my reaction to the film. And and, uh, this reviewer, um, you know, echoed a lot of the things I said. And and, uh, let's see, this was Flick Fanatics on YouTube. His video is Why Tenet is Not a Masterpiece, which I agree with. he pointed out something that I didn't pick up on, but is very, very true and very telling. There are no real establishing shots in this film. It is a globe-trotting film. Obviously, Christopher Nolan's been trying to do James Bond films for a very long time. Uh, Inception is sort of his first foray into that. This is even further down that genre. Uh, there aren't establishing shots. If you think of Inception, and this is uh, an example that this YouTube reviewer used. Uh, Cobb says, I need, um, you know, I need to find Tom Hardy's character. And I'm going to go to Mumbai. Next scene, big, beautiful panoramic shot of Mumbai. You know where you are. And then it zooms in on Tom Hardy. He's clearly in Mumbai. And there is, a you know, an interesting sort of cadre of locals surrounding him. That's perfect. When you have a film that is globetrotting, it is incredibly helpful to sort of set up where characters are when they change scenery. This film does not do that. It just sort of breakneck edits to a new location and we are left to 
I don't know, I, I guess where they may be. And these are not sort of, you know, they're not going to the Sydney Opera House where it's like instantly we know where it is or they're outside the Statue of Liberty where there's already a sort of language built in in human beings and, and an understanding there. You're just sort of left to, I don't know, guess as to where they might be. And uh, that adds to the sort of nonsensical nature of this film. The, the, you know, for a lot of it, you just feel like you're kind of floating around untethered and, you know, there's not much sort of thought to these little details. You do sort of get uh, little scenes with Christopher Nolan, uh, classic actors. You get a very wet mouth scene with Michael Caine where he's eating a lobster <laughs> and is looking uh, very old and very, uh, very sort of wet on the lips, which uh, it, uh, clearly he's a method actor. He was really eating in this scene and it's just disgusting and there's wet mouth slapping noises. Um, that's pretty fucking gross. You also get Tom Hardy, but not really. You get a sort of low-rent version of Tom Hardy. Clearly, Tom was busy maybe filming Venom too. I don't know. But they get an actor who is a Tom Hardy stand-in. And you actually think is Tom Hardy when you first meet them very, very briefly. And then you're like, oh, no, they they can't afford Tom anymore. Um, very just odd apparent casting where they were like, okay, who's do we have a stunt double for Tom? Who do we have that has a sort of... A TH energy we can kind of uh, get to play a military guy. Uh, of course, he's leading a military force that we don't really understand um, and have no idea what they're trying to do, if they're good or bad, etc. Much like most of this film. Elizabeth DeBecky uh, is a fantastic actress. She's in this. Um, she is so, so incredibly tall and skinny and very, like, uh, odd to watch and also captivating to watch. She, she's truly unique looking. And she's a wonderful actress. And I, I would say she doesn't have much to do in this film, unfortunately. And also, I hate to fucking say this, but Christopher Nolan clearly watched the Night Manager miniseries. Her character and her character's stakes and goals are exactly the same, and she played the same character in the Night Manager. Uh, which is a John LaCary um, adaptation. Very, very good miniseries. Highly recommended. Tom Hiddleston is the uh, the my, the titular character there. Use that correctly. Um, Elizabeth just honestly, she's playing exactly the same character that she played in Night Manager. She is a young mother dating a weapons dealer, which is exactly the character that Hugh Laurie played in Night Manager. And she's sort of coerced into this relationship, and her young son is held hostage uh, over her head as the reason why she sort of is dating this guy. This is word for word exactly the same character, same actress, from a far better sort of uh, piece of uh, media you can consume. How this did not occur to Christopher Nolan or her, the actress herself, I, I just don't know. But... It is almost exactly the same performance and the same sort of trope. I, I, I cannot believe that <laughs> that uh, nobody sort of opined about this, that it might be 
you know, just a, a complete retread and rehash of something that was far better. But in any case, she's there. She's a good actress. It's, you know, she's very serviceable in the role. She doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to do, unfortunately. Um, compounding those sort of oddities is the, the fact that I, th- I think the impression I'm left with is that the rules of the film that they establish seem to get discarded at a certain point. And maybe there is, you know, maybe Christopher Nolan's just too fucking smart and I need to really sit down with a graph and a chart to figure out the rules of time inversion, which I, I think is sort of the best way to put the gimmick of the film. Maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it, but they established this rule uh, pretty late moving into the this sort of uh, climax of the film, that if you go back in time, you have to have oxygen because you will be inverted and you have to have your own oxygen tank and oxygen mask. Um, that's fine. You can establish that rule. Uh, it's not re- easily understandable, but um, it adds a little interesting sort of visual tell for people that are sort of inverted in time and people that are in their natural time setting. Problem is, after the climax and and moving up to the climax, they just discard their oxygen masks and seem to be able to breathe fine. Now, maybe there is a sort of rational reason for why that happens. Um, The problem is it's so convoluted in its storytelling, there's no way to discern if that's correct or not. They also seem to be playing with the idea of sort of time travel, but also kind of alternate realities. And they just kind of lean into either of those theories whenever it suits the current scene they're in. And there does not seem to be a cohesive sort of uh, ideology behind these scenes. Now, maybe I'm wrong. But I gotta tell you, I don't want to fucking read a graph to figure out, you know, character motivation and the rules and the physics of the film that I'm watching. Um, it is, God, it is so exhausting to even just lay this out. As, as it is exhausting to kind of watch and try to rationalize as you're going through it. The final sort of crux of this film, and, and really like the, probably the, the biggest issue, is this sort of the big showdown. Um, God, I don't even want to fucking talk about this. Uh, Essentially, there is a a nuclear storage facility, and you have some kind of opposing army guarding this facility, which is not established. You don't know who is shooting at the heroes of this film, but apparently it's a very well-funded army with lots of guns and ammunition. Um... There are two teams that are going to go and prevent something from happening. And you have one team moving backwards in time and one team moving forward in time. If this doesn't make sense as I say it, that's because it doesn't fucking make sense in the movie either. Um, The true problem with this climax is that there is no spatial understanding of not just what the, the mission is and who the bad guys are... There's no spatial understanding of where any of the stuff is taking place. 
and who you're rooting for and what they're trying to achieve and what the adversity is. It is truly, I mean, there are video game cutscenes that that are so much better well-made than this climax because at least you understand like what direction you're supposed to be going and who's coming at you. you this is truly just, it is an action scene vomited onto screen. There's explosions, there's backwards explosions, there's bullets flying and going forward. And, uh, it's, it is, it's, it's just cinematic diarrhea. It doesn't make any sense. There's not, there's, there's no sort of weight or threats or anything there. It, it is a complete mishmash of just, you know, generic, as the reviewer said, sort of generic PUBG or Call of Duty sort of firefights. I, I think that's pretty accurate. It, it's an absolute mess. There does seem to be an interesting sort of set piece. I don't know if it was built or they actually found a place in Russia that had all these archaic buildings and arcs. It's a very interesting looking place to have a firefight. But ultimately, who fucking cares? I don't know who any of these people are. I can't follow any of the action. They were smart enough to at least designate red and blue armbands for the good guys. But even that tells us very, very little. And we have nothing to sort of root for or understand. Um, it, it's just really, it's it sort of, this is when the film really collapses in on itself. Um, just a, a, absolutely terrible. <laughs> As pointed out recently on uh, Chapo's review of Avatar by the great Matt Chrisman, uh, he said, think about the final battle in Avatar and think about how you understand where every single character is in relation to each other and where the opposing forces are going. You know, uh, you know, the sort of mercenaries and the Marines are in that giant bomber fortress and they're heading towards the tree in the center of the map, essentially. And you know Jake Soli is on his gigantic banshee, and you know where the Navi forces are. And as the battle unfolds, everyone's kind of converging and getting closer and closer to the tree, and the forces are opposing one another and interacting with each other. And throughout that battle, you sort of check in with each of the characters, and you get more information as to where they are in relation to the tree and its protection, or the tree and its sort of destruction. Even though it's been probably, I don't know, seven or eight years since I've watched that scene, I could probably sit down and storyboard out the beats of that final battle uh, to a relatively cohesive level of recreation. Not saying I wouldn't miss stuff or details, but essentially I know where people are going, what they were fighting for, who they were fighting, and where they were in relation to one another. Um, by comparison, this sort of final battle, it, it has none of those qualities. It, it, it's truly embarrassing. Christopher Nolan should be embarrassed by how bad and disorienting this final scene is. Maybe that's his intention. Maybe this whole thing was just to kind of leave us stunned and require repeat viewings. I, I don't know, but it makes for a shitty film. Uh, I will tell you that much. Um, I think that's pretty much everything that occurs to me about this film. Obviously, I don't have any strong feelings to share. Um, I do actually think, you know, I think that the Rotten Tomatoes rating is about 70%. I do think that that's kind of accurate because 
there is intense action and and your heart does start beating and you are sort of following the scenes when when something's going on really great fight scene in a in a cramped kitchen uh good car chases all of that works and it's you know it's a well-filmed movie the cinematography is really good you know it's it's craftsmanship is impeccable it's just that they clearly didn't have a good script and they didn't have these things sorted out and i think that when christopher nolan is working by himself this was written and directed by him whereas i believe the majority of his other films are co-written um it uh it's not good it's not a good look um i don't want to be sort of incredibly negative here so i'm gonna leave you guys with a couple recommendations for better films or better things you can watch and i think that actually he kind of took quite a bit from these specific films um in order to make this one the first thing i would recommend is primer by shane carruth which was a a tiny independent film fantastic fantastic film about I, i think actually the less i tell you the better but it plays on a lot of familiar territory and it is it does become a confusing movie but that is an engaging sort of confusing and you want to rewatch and take notes and figure this out because it is understandable it is actually probably the best use of these themes in a film that i've seen uh also i believe that the idea of oxygen masks was lifted from primer uh for use in tenet um also not not related to this but another great and odd film from the same filmmaker Shane Carruth is Upstream Color, which I think was his follow-up to Primer. Very, very bizarre, surreal film. Um, I consider it a piece of surreal filmmaking, you know, in the way uh, like uh, Unshen Andalou or, you know, Yodorovsky films. Um, it has nothing to do with Tenet or any of these themes, but I do think it's it's sort of a completely underrated unseen film. And if you like Primer, I would definitely recommend Upstream Color with the understanding it's very, very weird. (laughs) Um, But I think you would enjoy that as well. I would also say Night Manager. Watch that miniseries. Here in the States, it was on AMC. I think it might have been a BBC production. Um, The Night Manager is awesome. Uh, I love John Le Carre. I don't know if I'm saying his fucking name right. That's not his real name anyway. But I, I love all of his his books and his stories. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and I think Night Manager is just... It, it's exactly Tenet, but better, and without all the trappings of the gimmick. You know, it's just kind of a straight-up spy, espionage, weapons dealer, beautiful girl thriller but it's so fucking well done. And uh, you basically get to see Elizabeth Debicki doing exactly the same thing and, and arguably doing it a little bit better. Now, I want to further leave on a positive note with a couple of highlights from this past year that you guys can check out that I think will uh, get the taste out of your mouth for this terrible, terrible film. (laughs) Um, First of all, I think I mentioned it before, Underwater, starring Kirsten Stewart, 
Uh, surprisingly solid kind of B-movie flick. Really, really enjoyable. Keeps it simple. It's not trying to rewrite history. It is just largely a ripoff of The Abyss and other underwater films. But, hey, Vincent Cassell in a, a kind of mechanized suit? I'm in. And uh, I found that to be so much more profoundly enjoyable than most of the films I've watched this year. So I would definitely say check that out. It'll make you feel good. Action figure of the year, I think I am ready to award. Um, I might have to split the vote here, but I just received Super 7's TMNT Ultimates, The Shredder and The Mutagen Man. These are just absolutely perfect action figures. And I, I can't speak highly enough about what Super 7 are doing with this line. I have a hard time picking between Mutagen Man and Shredder. Um, they're both just fantastic. And finally, finally, we have that Shredder you wanted since you were a kid. Remember the awkward pose that original character was in? And how he couldn't hold his weapons and he wasn't very menacing. He looked like he had scoliosis. All that's been wiped clean. We have this definitive version now. And it is just sublime. that The articulation moves like butter. There's a cloth or plastic cape option. Plenty of accessories. It's gorgeous. This is truly the pinnacle of action figure making. And I also think Mutagen Man is right by his side. It is big. It is bulky. Everything works great. Uh, It's... I don't know how they did this. This is really like finely tuned craftsmanship. These are masterpieces. And so... I don't know how easy it is to get a hold of these Ultimates on the secondary market. I definitely recommend you guys start pre-ordering these. Uh, You know, just in my book, there are not finer action figures to be made. I am astoundingly impressed by this. The the craftsmanship and everything is is on the money. I think I'm going to have to start picking up the entire waves instead of cherry-picking certain characters because they're just that good. And I could see they're... He's really appreciating in value if, if that's your sort of reason for collecting. Um, so shout out to Brian and Josh and all the people that bust their ass at Super 7. I think that this is the new ceiling. This is the new standard for action figure fineness. And uh, everything kind of pales in comparison. So go check them out. And uh, if you're lucky enough to pick these up, definitely do it because I could see them becoming scarce in the future. And then one last plug again for Staff Let's Flats on uh, BBC. I think it's on HBO now here in the States. That is S-T-A-T-H-L-E-T-S-F-L-A-T-S. Staff Let's Flats. Easily one of the funniest comedies I've seen. Probably the funniest comedy since the English version of The Office. And uh, they've recently been renewed for a third season. I'm very much looking forward to that. Very short two seasons. You can get through it probably in a couple days. And it is immensely joyous. Very funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, the the couple of patrons that have watched it have concurred with me. It is as good as I said it was. And it is really hilarious. So um, you can check that out. I think you guys will like it. There's, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of bad stuff this year, and there's been a couple highlights. So if you're looking to kind of wind down the year, 
by consuming some media or products. Those are the things I would point to. And uh, hey, here's hoping we're still around in 2021. What do you say? Pizza out.